Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace Church is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. It was three weeks ago that we started a series on faith here at the church, and the first message was on the object of our faith. And we talked about how the power of our faith lies in the object of our faith, and that object is Jesus Christ and His Word to us, His promises to us. The second message, we talked about faith for difficult times. And then last week, Joe taught us on how when we have faith, when we have a strong trust in God, we can rest in His promises, and we can get a good night's sleep because we're not worried about our future. Well, this morning, I've asked my friend Eric Rodman to speak to us on faith for parenting. Faith for parenting. Eric's been a a member of our church for the last eight or nine years, and he and his wife, Danny, are parents. They have four children, Noah, Isaac, Emma, and Josiah. And many of you may not know this, but Eric was a youth pastor for many years in the church where my family attended before we came here to Saving Grace Church. Uh, Eric holds a, a bachelor's degree from Liberty University in Biblical Studies and a master's degree in counseling. And over the years, he and I have met together uh, many times for accountability and just to encourage one another in the Lord. And so I've seen firsthand his passion for, for children and for parenting children by faith in the Lord and His power. And so I know we're going we're gonna to see that passion come out this morning, and I think you'll be very encouraged by this message this morning. So would you please join me in welcoming Eric Rodman. All right. All right. Thanks, Bob. I wanted to start this morning. Uh, where's Mark at? Mark Altrogi. Did he leave already? Oh, there he is. I wanted to just say, Mark, uh, since you've retired, things are really going downhill fast because they're letting me talk to these people this morning. (laughs) I'm not sure why. So they're really scraping the bottom of the barrel. And uh, so just just kidding. Obviously, I would love for you, um, thanks for the introduction, Bob. That sounded, sounded really nice. Sounded like I might know what I'm talking about. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, about 10, if you would have asked me to speak here 10 years ago, I would have put a lot of faith or uh, a lot of stock in what Bob just said as an announcement or as an introduction uh, for me to speak to you. And I would have thought that my undergraduate degree uh, in count- and my graduate degree in counseling would have meant something for, uh, for what I would say to you. And I would think that my experience as a parent and my career in working with children, I worked with children Uh, with some pretty extreme behavior problems for about 12 years, Uh, and a lot of interesting circumstances involved in that, and and, uh, just working in some really difficult situations. The children I worked with would have been one step away from being institutionalized uh, as a result of the the troubles that they were having, adjusting to life and and, and living in their families. And so that experience would have, um, I thought, would have uh, helped me to give you some good advice on parenting, 
And I would have thought that, um, if you remember the show, I don't know that it's still on, but you remember the show Super Nanny? Do you remember that show? Um, that was kind of like what my job was, was to go into some homes and try to get people to help their kids uh, sort of get adjusted and, and get control. And so I would have thought that the techniques I used there with little sticker charts and smiley faces and bowls of candy and those sorts of things may have done something to help these children adjust to life and to, to get control of their behaviors. And I may have spoke to you about that and, and talked to you about how um, those things could be a help to you. But I'll tell you that about two years, about two years ago, after putting a lot of personal faith in those kind of things, for God to help me with my own children, he had to take me through a pretty difficult time. And it wasn't just to help me with my own children, it was to help me with my own sin and um, God really worked a miracle in my life by disciplining me uh, in a pretty extreme way. And it was a discipline that involved a number of just personal struggles with sin, as well as putting an awful lot of faith in my own ability to parent my children. And so, if you wondered why would they let this guy talk to us today about parenting, if you had that question in your mind, um, you could forget everything that Bob has just said about my college degree uh, or what I did as a career for a number of years. Uh, those things, while there possibly could be a help in some minimal way, none of those things mean anything without faith for parenting. So today I want to talk to you about that topic and I can tell you that I won't be giving you any practical tips for parenting today. There are no life hacks that I'm familiar with um, that will help you as a parent. Um, there's nothing I could tell you as, as a list of practices that will solve your parenting problems. What I can tell you is that a firm and solid trust in Jesus Christ is the only thing that will bring about true spiritual growth in the lives of your children. Hebrews 11.6 tells us, Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. When we think about that verse, I want you to think about that word impossible. When I said that it's going to be impossible or there won't be anything that will help you parent other than a sure and a firm faith in Jesus Christ for parenting, I think that applies where this verse applies to us as parents in that way. So I want to talk to you about the idea of faith today. As I said, I don't want to talk to you about techniques for parenting. I just want to talk to you about faith, how God grows our faith, how it happens, and how we pass the test for faith. So when we talk about how do I grow in faith, you might be thinking, okay, what's the first step? What do I do to grow in faith? What is it that I have to do to bring about faith? Well, I want to tell you that that's already happening. In fact, 
Philippians 1.6 says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before that we should walk in them. God has already have a plan to help your faith grow. It's already in process. As a parent, uh, you're probably struggling with different things with your children. But this applies beyond parenting. It applies with work. It applies uh, in your marriage in all those ways. And he is at work in you. There's not a lot to do. He's already working it out. But I want to talk to you a little bit about how it happens. Because I think that's where we get confused frequently, is how does God bring about faith in us? And if you wanted to turn to Genesis, although we're going to go through uh, about 11 chapters, so I'm taking full liberty today to use up the whole allotment of time to cover 11 chapters in Genesis, so get ready. Um, don't worry, I'm just going to kind of give you an overview of what takes place in those chapters. But this is the story of Abraham, and God's calling Abraham and working in his life and bringing about faith in Abraham. So I want you to understand how it is that God works faith out in our lives, because we get tripped up as parents, as husbands or wives, as, as workers. We get tripped up because we don't understand what God is doing. And a lot of times we begin to question God, we begin to doubt and so I want to show you what happens in Abraham's life. And the story covers a span of about 25 years and starts in Genesis chapter 12 when God calls to Abraham and he says, Abraham, get up and go to a land that I will show you. He promises him at that time that he will make him a great nation. He says, I'll bless you and make your name great. You will be a blessing to those who come in contact with you. And those who bless you will be blessed and those who curse you will be cursed. So Abraham got up, went to the land of Canaan, and when he got there, he built an altar, and it says he called on the name of the Lord. And he went just a little bit further and found in the land that God sent him to that there was a severe famine. So he decides to go to Egypt. He gets to Egypt, and in Egypt, he finds out that the Pharaoh may very well take his life because of his wife. So he concocts a story um, where he gives his wife away. Uh, to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh then is, is judged by God for this. And so Pharaoh kicks him out of Egypt, sends him back. Abraham returns back to the land where he originally built that altar to call on the name of the Lord. And when he gets there, he does this again, calls on the name of the Lord. And this time when he gets there, the land's not big enough to support all of the uh, livestock that he and Lot have, so they have to part ways. At that time, God says to him, lift up your eyes and look to the north, the south, the east, the west. I'm going to give you this land forever. It'll be an everlasting uh, covenant between you and me and your descendants. So as he's going through this story in, in the book of Genesis, God is promising Abraham. He's calling him. He's commanding him uh, to do these different things. But each time God speaks to him in the book of Genesis, is immediately followed by some great difficulty, some challenge to his life, even threats of his life. And in other ways, we'll see here as we continue to go through here. But as soon as Lot separates from Abraham, he's taken captive. Abraham has to go and fight for Lot to rescue him. 
And when he does this, God again speaks to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, he says, do not fear, for I am your shield and your great reward. And so God um, helps Abraham rescue Lot, and he again says to Abraham, Abraham, get out of your tent and go look into the sky. Look at all the stars in the heaven. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. And in that chapter, in chapter 15, verse 6, it says that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In the book of Romans, Paul writes about this story and speaks to the fact that this was the point at which God declared Abraham righteous, simply because he put his faith in God for what God had promised to him, God declared him righteous. And so it goes on in that story and God begins to reveal more of his plan and what he's going to do in Abraham's life. And, and he's, he's talking about how grand this plan is, how great his, his, his descendants are going to be, and how numerous they're going to be. But then he says, oh, and by the way, they're going to live in Egypt as slaves for 400 years, and you're going to die before they ever get back to the land of Canaan. Well, that's not very encouraging. <laughs> that seems a little difficult. But wait, God keeps promising these descendants. He says, this is going to be my land. This is, this is where I'm going to live. It's going to be an everlasting promise. But my descendants are going to live as slaves for 400 years? God goes on in that same section. He defines the boundaries of the land that he's going to give them, of course, after uh, his, his descendants live as slaves in Egypt. And then in chapter 16, Abraham and his wife concoct a sort of a scheme to bring about this, this promise that God had made. And so Abraham has a, a, a son uh, to, to his servant, um, Hagar, and sort of tries to short-circuit God's plan in this whole, this whole process. And that's at the end of chapter 16, where Abraham is now 86 years of age. He's a little on the old side, even for those days. He still doesn't have a son. He's getting a little desperate. He tries his own scheme, his own plan in this process. And at the end of chapter 16, he's 86. Chapter 17 starts with Abraham being 99 years old. Thirteen years pass by, and God doesn't say a word to him. After all the promise that he made, after the descendants he was supposed to have, the land that was to be his, 13 years, at 99 years of age, God's not saying anything. Then all of a sudden, God comes to him again, and God places several more demands on him, and again reiterates the promises that he's made. He says, walk before me and be blameless. Establish, um, I'm going to establish a covenant between me and you, and multiply, uh, multiply your descendants. He changes his name from, a, uh, from a, uh, an elevated father to a father of a multitude. He also tells him that kings will come from you. I'll have an everlasting covenant and there'll be a seal or a symbol that I will uh, require of you, which was circumcision. Now, when I read that story, I think, you're 99. God says, circumcision is going to be your seal. I think I'd be like, can we just sh shake on it? So God is stretching Abraham's faith. He's stretching this, this man to the point of absolute, ridiculous, uh, 
uh, circumstances that don't make any sense. He's telling him all these things at the age of 99. And in, in chapter 17, verse 70, it says, Abraham falls on his face and laughs. Now, this isn't a laugh like, oh, thank goodness, now God's doing all this stuff. This is a laugh of mockery. Because he goes on, God has to correct Abraham for that. And he says, because at that point, Abraham says, okay, well, I get, I'm going to have descendants. So here's this Ishmael guy that we kind of concocted, this uh, son of mine. God says, no, that's not the plan. You're going to have a son from your own body. And the funny thing is, God tells him to name his son Isaac, which means laughter. <laughs> you think this is funny, Abraham. Um, how about you name your son Laughter now? So God commands this of him. And then also Sarah, in chapter 18, when God comes back and says that next year you're going to have a son, Sarah laughs. And God corrects her as well. But at least now we can see we have a definite period of time. God is now promising that next year this time we are going to have the son and, and the promise of the descendants that he's been telling me for the last 25 years. And then he gets to, uh, after, the, after he tells him this, then he takes him through another dark period where he has to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the place where his nephew is now living. It's filled with wickedness. And God's going to bring about destruction there. And Abraham even pleads that God would spare Sodom and Gomorrah if he could find even ten people that were righteous in the city. And God agrees. But unfortunately, he cannot. And so Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. He also has a run-in with Abimelech who threatens again to take his wife from him and maybe kill Abraham. So they again try the same scheme Concoct a story, she's my sister, and Abimelech is, is judged because of that. And then it brings us to chapter 21 in Genesis, where it says, and then the Lord, in verse 1, then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. And so Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. So just think about this. Many of you, I'm supposed to talk to you about parenting today, and, and, and I'll talk to you in a little bit about how parenting is, is, a, is a pretty certain trial. It's hard to be a parent. Raising children is a challenge. And God, when we think about what God did for Abraham's life, we think about how hard we can go through trials how, with our children, how long those can be. When you think about this story, God took Abraham through a series of trials, promises, trials and promises, more trials, some more promises, finally fulfilling the promise by giving him a son. And that was a, a, a span of 25 years. At the age of 99. Even for those days, that is pretty old to be having kids. <laughs> Did somebody just say amen? <laughs> That's him. <laughs> Absolutely. The point, though, is that when we think about how does God cause your faith to grow, that's it. He commands and promises, then he lets you try that out. Wait, God, you, you said 
if we would do this, this would be the result. Or you promised that this would take place. Now, if God answered every one of those or brought every one of those promises to you immediately and in the instant, it would sort of create in us, I think, a way to, to conduct ourselves in life, in life that would, would set an expectation that everything has to happen right now. And if God doesn't fulfill a promise right now, then God's not good, God's not right, God's not just. But every time God gives us the command, gives us the promise, and then lets us kind of hang out there for a little while to stretch our faith. And it's just like that in parenting, without a doubt. As you have children, you're going you're gonna to feel and realize that, man, God, I don't, I don't see anything happening. Or maybe you see all the wrong things happening. You'd be happy if there was nothing happening. But unfortunately, there's a lot happening. It's all the wrong stuff. But will we trust in him for parenting? I think all of this happens for an ultimate test, and I think this can happen many times. But in the story of Abraham, when God talks to Abraham, promises him all this stuff, finally gives him a son, he gives him one final test, one final trial that he has to overcome. When you get to chapter 22 of that story, Isaac is now old enough at least to walk and talk. It doesn't say how old he is. Abraham's now well over 100 years of, of age. And it says it in chapter 22, verse 1, it says, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. When you think about what God has taken Abraham through, promise, trial, promise, command, trial, more trials, more and more trials, more commands, more promises, finally fulfills it, and so Abraham's looking at Isaac as the fulfillment of the promise, which in a sense is true. But ultimately, Abraham's hope cannot be in Isaac. And so God sends him up onto this mountain as one final test. And between verse 2 and 3, if you look at the past in Abraham's life, you would expect Abraham to come up with another scheme. You would expect him to maybe argue with God or ask God for some alternate plan. But it goes from verse 2 directly into 3, and it says, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him. And it goes through, and it never says anywhere in there that Abraham stops and asks God to reconsider. It never says that he wants a different plan or he offers, again, Ishmael or Eliezer of Damascus. Could we, could we sacrifice one of those guys? In James 2, or James chapter 1, verse 2 and 4, it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. After 25 years, promise and trial, promise and trial, finally seeing God's faithfulness and His goodness and His, his promises revealed, Abraham's now perfect. Now I mean that in the human sense, of course. But his faith is so certain in God that Hebrews then tells us in recovering this story from the Old Testament, Hebrews tells us that Abraham was willing to make this sacrifice because he believed at this point that God could even raise him from the dead. His faith was stretched over and over again, and then finally seeing the promises fulfilled, Abraham's faith was now at a point that he believed God would even raise his child from the dead if he would just simply obey this command to sacrifice Isaac. So our faith is built by us hearing and heeding God's commands, hearing his promises, trusting in those, and then God taking us through those extended protracted periods of time where it doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem like the promise can be fulfilled. It doesn't seem like this is going to come about. And with your children as parents, you know this, especially if you have older, older children, you know that you're looking at these kids thinking, this is never going to come about, and then God answers your prayer. He's building your faith, and that's what he did for Abraham to the point where Abraham's faith was perfected. So when you're as a parent, when you're thinking, this can't get any worse. This is never going to change. This is only going to keep getting worse. My child is lost forever. God is just using that to stretch your faith. And I would challenge you with the notion this morning that God gives you the children you have for a purpose. And in fact, your children are a test of your faith. From start to finish, from the moment you realize you're pregnant for the first time, all the way through life, and and I've been told numerous times that your children never stop being your children, you never stop being a parent. I've only been a parent for about 16 years, but I, I, I know and work with people who are very old and who have children who are 60 and 70 years of age, and they still view them as their children, still view themselves as their parents. You always continue to worry about your children and fret over them. And God's giving you those children as a test of your faith. Dave Harvey said in a message one time, I think I'm just paraphrasing, but he says, uh, said in a message one time on parenting that God gives you the children you need, not the children you want. It's true. Because children we want would obey. Children we want would clean up their room. Children we want would take a shower. Children we want would put their bike away so you don't run over it with the car. Children we want would eat their vegetables. But instead, God gives you children that are messy. God gives you children that refuse to eat vegetables. God gives you the children that make life hard. Psalm 127, 3-5 says that children are a gift from the Lord. I, does he mean like the gift you get at Christmas that like has the electronic drums and the keyboard that he gives you, you know, your aunt gives to your kids that then you have to listen to uh, that is really frustrating and annoying? Is that what he means by a gift from like that? Or my wife's grandmother, 
used to every year, uh, she used to give me soap on a rope and cologne. So I, I think the message was either I s- smelled bad or she expected me to end up in prison. I'm not sure. Do you guys know what soap, soap on a rope is? Some of you kids don't know what that is. Every year that's what I would give her. Is that what he means by children are a gift like that? Well, if we view the trials that God placed in our life as a curse, then sure, maybe that's, that's how you can take it, but that's not how it's intended. That's not why he gives us children that are difficult, and that's not why the parenting, parent-child relationship is hard. Those things are hard because God wants us to not just use better parenting techniques. He doesn't want us to just you know, try harder and read more Christian books on parenting. He wants us to trust in Him. So He gives you one or two, or in the case of the Colleen's 75 kids, um, gives you those kids to help you trust in Him. What if you spent your whole parenting life, depending on your own ability to train your children in righteousness. They would be failures. They'd be Pharisees. They'd look good on the outside, but inside would be full of darkness. As a parent, I challenge you today to view that relationship as hard as it's going to be, or it already is, or has been for maybe 30 or 40 or 50 years. Your relationship with your child has been strained. Maybe you don't even talk to them anymore. Maybe they have said things like they hate you and they never want to speak to you again. If those things are happening in your life, it's to stretch your faith in God. It's there for a reason. So what's that mean? We just sit by and pray and say, God, hey, can you fix these kids? Can you please make them clean their room? Can you help them to brush their teeth? Can you help them to eat their vegetables? Well, I would just challenge you today to consider that, yes, that's where you start. Every act as a parent has to start with faith and trust in God. Throughout this series, we've been challenging one another with the notion that our faith lies not in our faith. Our faith lies in the one Uh, in whom we're trusting, or the object of our faith. So I would challenge you today, before you give your kid another lecture about eating vegetables or picking up their room, start with prayer. Open your Bible, get on your knees, search the Scriptures, and pray in faith that God can bring about change in your child's life. If you start there as a parent, you cannot go wrong. That doesn't mean your children will will immediately obey. God's still going to stretch you. In fact, if you make that step, God's just going to make the trial a little bit longer. He's going to stretch you out just a little bit more the next time. He's going to make the trial a little bit darker the next time. Because honestly, if if we have a little success, and I've done this a number of times, a little bit of success as a parent, and it's not really mine, God did it, But we have that success and we start thinking, hey, I'm not so bad at this after all. Look, they're all right. You might think they're going to turn out okay after all. Don't worry, God will correct you on that as well. 
he says that ultimately, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. I'm sorry, in, in chapter 3, verse 6, it says, I planted Apollos water, but God was causing the growth. So th- then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. As a parent, all I can tell you to do today, I don't have any tricks or tips. I don't have any crafty way to approach your kids. I can't tell you how to give them a good old-fashioned lecture and convince them to do the right thing. All I can tell you is that you obey what God has asked you to do in faith, starting there, crying out to God, God, you have commanded me to everywhere I go, to talk with them. As I walk along the road, as I lie down to sleep at night, as I sit at the table to talk about you, you've commanded me to do that. Please help me to do that in faith. And then talk to your kids. You may have to have a conversation with your teenage son or daughter about a very awkward topic. You may have to talk or ask questions of your children that are incredibly embarrassing for you and for them. You may have to set some boundaries around your child's life that, that causes them to despise you. But if you do it in faith, God will cause the growth. We're still going to work, we're still going to obey, but that all has to start in a dependent, uh, in an absolute dependence on God. I think one of the hardest things as a parent would be to make it to the end of my life not knowing for certain if my child had ever really turned their heart to him. I consider that occasionally, and and for the most part, my children seem to be at least considering or have made a profession of faith of some kind, and I'm thankful to God for that. But I know there are people in this church who have children who who have not done that. Again, I know that there are people here who have children who are far from God, and children who are um, maybe saying one thing but doing something else, and it can seem like this just isn't going to work out. How is this ever going to happen? I can't tell you that God is going to bring them about. In fact, some people reference a passage in Proverbs about how if you train your children in the right way, they won't, they, they won't uh, turn away from it when they're old. And people take that as an absolute promise frequently from God, but it's not. It's a proverb. It's generally true that if you train your children a certain way, they'll continue in that way. It's not an absolute promise. Some of your children will never receive Jesus Christ. Some of your children will continue and persist in sin until the day you die. All I can tell you about those circumstances is that you have to keep trusting in God. That's the only thing you can do. Talk to them. Share Christ with them one more time. But start that conversation with an absolute dependence that Jesus Christ is powerful 
He is able. He wants to save them. Start with faith in, in that absolute dependence that that is what he's going to do. And even if, as Job said in 13, um, Job 13, 15, he says, Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Whatever the circumstance, as a parent, whatever the circumstance as a husband or a wife or in your job or whatever the trial is in your life, if you could hang on to that one slogan, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. All you have to do is trust that he just knows what he's doing. It doesn't make sense to us. It hurts us. But every time, it's for our own good. So guys, if you came here today hoping to get some good advice on parenting, I think that's pretty sound advice. But I don't have any tips or tricks to tell you. I don't know how to get your kids to eat vegetables. I can't get mine to do that. Uh, I can't get my kids to clean up their room. I do threaten. I scream, I yell, I become angry. And sometimes they'll do it out of fear of their father, I guess. But anymore, my older children just start to laugh. That's disheartening. Just when you think you're starting to see some progress, they laugh at you. Well, that's just God's way of saying, listen, I don't say in my word to train them up in the fear of the dad or mom. Train them up in the fear of the Lord. If your children can trust God for everything, even cleaning their room or even eating vegetables, if you could talk to your kids about, let's pray and ask God to help you eat your broccoli, besides getting some interesting comments from your kids, um, it's a way for them to start to develop their own faith in God. And really, isn't that what we want to do as parents? Do we want them to trust in us? Do we want them to put their faith in their mom or dad? If you say yes, you're a fool. It's the worst thing in the world to have little kids who think you're the best thing in the world turn into kids who don't even want to spend time with you. But that's part of God's process. Because ultimately, as parents, if we can get our children to trust in Him for everything in this world, for everything in their lives, we have done it by God's grace and by God's power. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. He has done it. And He's used our obedience. But He's done it because we've been faithful. We've trusted in Him. We've asked and begged Him to do that for us. So guys, I'll conclude there today. And I'll say the only thing I challenge you to do is start even before this message is over. Even right now, begin in your own heart crying out to God to save your children, to change your children, to give you faith for that. And guess what? He'll answer that prayer probably after 30 years and a lot of trials and tears and heartache. He'll answer that. And then just like Abraham, you'll be perfected in faith that God can do that miracle. The, the band come up 
And then let me pray for us as parents. God, I just... uh, ask for forgiveness for my lack of faith. God, I ask for forgiveness for my arrogance and pride toward you and toward my family. My wife even knows now my hypocrisy. God, you know as well. Forgive those sins, Jesus. Jesus, I pray that you'd bring, bring about salvation for the children in this church. Pray, God, that you would give parents faith in you to do that miraculous work. Thank you, Jesus.